Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcasts. Every week we take a couple of data points. We tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, Deputy Editor here at Foreign Policy. I'm coming to you from Berlin. And across the pond in New York is, of course, FP columnist, Columbia University professor, Adam Tooze. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. So in a bit, we're going to sink our teeth into the world of pet care and more specifically, the world of pet food. And we're going to unpack the profits in that sector of the economy and tell you what it says about the broader economy. But first, we want to take a look at something in the headlines like we normally do. And with that, our first data point. That is 10.4 million. That's the number of jobs that are currently unfilled in the U.S. economy as of September, according to the latest data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's not much different than the record high of 10.9 million openings that were recorded back in July. So as vaccinations have increased and the economy has continued to open up, employers have been finding it incredibly difficult to find workers to fill jobs. It's a sign of the times. Employees at this Nebraska Burger King telling customers, we all quit. And it's not just happening there. They're now looking at the door and wondering if the grass and paychecks are greener on the other side. And it's leaving many workplaces seriously understaffed. A tremendous number of people have left the labor force during the pandemic. Five million people, according to Goldman Sachs. Many of those people are still continuing to voluntarily quit jobs every month. 3% of the entire U.S. labor force chose to quit work in September, according to the same set of data that reported all those job openings. The quit rate typically averages around 2%. That was before the pandemic, but now it's been hovering around the 3% mark for, for, for most of this year. Economists are calling this the Great Resignation it's a catchy name, but from what I can tell, economists have a harder time figuring out why exactly this is happening, much less whether this is just a momentary blip or it's a whole new economic era. And that brings us to you, Adam. So the first question that comes to mind is whether there's an underlying economic cause underneath this whole great resignation. I mean, is it the number of job openings that's creating this whole wave of people quitting jobs? I mean, is it because they're confident they can find another one? Or, or is there really a deeper cultural shift at work? I mean, has the pandemic gotten people to reevaluate what, what they value in their lives? What do you think? I think we're, we're finding out, to be honest. But I mean, my money would be on the, the first explanation that, that people quit when there are job openings for them to go to and when they feel confident about that. I mean, it's telling who's quitting right now. Uh, in general, the resignation rates are highest in the areas which have just been exposed to huge stress and burnout over the last 18 months. So 
If you look at manufacturing or finance, we're not really seeing the same kind of surge of quitting as we are in healthcare, where like you know almost four percent of the workforce have quit their jobs, uh, or tech, which where people have been under huge pressure, and then highest of all in accommodation and um, food services, where like seven percent of the workforce dropped out of their current employment uh, and their current jobs in in August alone. That's seven hundred and forty thousand people in August working in leisure and hospitality who quit jobs in hotels, bars, restaurants, theme parks, you name it. Women are somewhat more likely to be quitting. Um, That could be a gendered effect because of childcare issues with the Delta variant sweeping through. It could also be a sectoral effect. The sort of sectors that have been under higher stress have been the ones that women are in. It's really, I think, an interesting thesis to ask also how far this is a form of protest, if you like. The great economist, political economist, Albert Hirschman coined this phrase of like people having the choice between exit and voice. And to quit is to exit a situation, right, rather than to try and change it through voice. So who is not quitting? Well, people in, you know, better paid white collar jobs in sectors like finance. Um, If you go to a different sector of the labor market, people like teachers. Now, teachers, you think, have plenty of reason to be upset about the situation, but they haven't been quitting in the same rates. And one reason why might be that they have voice. They have voice because they're unionized. They're one of the highest, uh, most heavily unionized sectors of the American labor force. So I think that's a very important dynamic here is like quitting is a choice that you make under circumstances that don't look too risky. If quitting seems like your best way out of the situation rather than arguing your position from where you stand and trying to improve your conditions that way. It's also a choice, I think, on the whole quitting that older workers make. So it's quite difficult to disentangle temporary quitting from long-term retirement. But of the 5 million or so Americans who have left the workforce since the pandemic kicked off, permanently left it, about 3.4 million were over the age of 55, as you'd expect. So a variety of different factors in play here, but I'm, I'm definitely going with circumstance and then how much voice you think you've got in your place of work. Okay, but this raises then the question of why the great resignation is a problem at all. I mean, you're pointing to people retiring in part. Uh, You're pointing to people leaving jobs that were intensely stressful. I mean, if people are autonomously choosing to quit jobs, I mean, shouldn't we be happy for them? Why why would economists think of this as a problem? And, And maybe another way of putting that is what's the immediate cost for the economy in all of this beyond just certain inconveniences when you're shopping or, or trying to get something to eat. Yeah, I think in fairness to economists, I don't think they do think it's a problem as such. As Exactly as you say, it's an exercise of agency on the part of workers of autonomy. It's a kind of empowerment, right? It's also a bad sign, of course, that jobs were so unpleasant or in various ways unattractive that people just want to dump them. One factor that's been pointed to, in fact, is that many of these people are leaving jobs in the service sector. And there's apparently been, along with the, you know, the great resignation, the great rudeness. It's just simply the toxicity that has swept over so many workers in the service sector workplaces across America since the reopening of people just letting out their frustration, arguing about face masks, all of that kind of stuff. When people become unemployed, one of the things we lament is that all of the sort of soft tissue, the 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 human and cultural capital, the know-how invested in long-term employment, all of that is broken and and lost, right, and sort of thrown on the scrap scrap heap. And in a sense, something similar happens with a 
voluntary one voluntary quit as well and it's 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 catching so one of the effects that we've seen in workplaces recently is that if one person quits a team then other people are quite likely to quit it too because they can see as it were that investment fragmenting before their eyes that's a net loss for the economy as a whole when that happens there's no winner there you just lose all of that cultural capital know-how a Gallup poll recently found that no more than somewhere like a fifth to a third of the workforce are self-identified as invested in their workplaces. So that's one of the reasons why people go. And you could say to that extent that moving is, is, is efficiency enhancing from the point of view of the economy because they're moving from place workplaces where they're disengaged, which according to the Gallup poll produces a hit to productivity, a reduction productivity of, of almost 20%. So people when you compare engaged to unengaged workers, that's the difference. And if you, as it were, shift and sort and move people to workplaces where they feel happier, then uh, like for like, there's actually a gain in overall productivity. So complex set of trade-offs. Okay. I mean, I do want to burrow down on something it seems like you were suggesting, which is that maybe some of these jobs that people were leaving just weren't very good in the first place. I mean, you know, you point to the to the great rudeness, but I, when I think of the times I've worked in service jobs, uh, they, they, they were in a bed of roses any time, even before the pandemic, you know, uh, so I guess that raises the question of, should these jobs I- exist at all? I mean, or, or, rather than, I guess, trying to think of ways we could fill them, I guess we could raise wages and, and get people into these jobs. But isn't it another way of thinking of empty jobs that can't get filled that maybe can we innovate our way out of the jobs in the first place? Can we have robots serving us in restaurants or washing dishes in the back rather than forcing people to serve us in that way? I mean, should we be sort of breaking down the quality of a job when, when we're talking about these statistics? Well, I mean, in fairness to the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the quit data um, which are cited in these headline numbers come from a thing called JOLTS. It's a particular survey system, which is a fairly stripped down survey designed to deliver rapid information about job openings, hence the the acronym, job openings, quit rates. And it does, in fact, include data about the industries that people are quitting from. So that's where we know. But it's a relatively recent series. It's less than 20 years old. It didn't actually originally produce state-level data until 2019, but if you can put this series together with other series from the BLS to get an impression of some of the backdrop here. So we know, for instance, from weekly earnings data that, you know, in October, uh, leisure and hospitality added 164,000 jobs, paying on average less than $500 a week, which is pretty miserable by any standard, compared to, say, business services that added 100,000 jobs, paying per week. And I think that helps to put in perspective why folks in hospitality, you know, might might be quitting. To put those numbers again in perspective, what is the average, what is the median weekly earning in the United States? Well, it's $765 per week. So the folks leaving those hospitality leisure sector jobs are being paid less than the median by a considerable margin and really bad wages. I've already been hearing people talk just in sort of casual conversations about how more migrants could be brought in to fill this labor shortage, uh, that, that that could be a, a solution to, the, to, to, to some of the problems employers are facing. And that got me thinking whether this kind of points to tensions that exist in the 
political coalition of the Democratic Party, which is obviously in power in the White House and in Congress. I mean, overall, it seems to me it's a party that on one hand says it's pro-worker. It represents the interests of workers and unions. On the other hand, it, it generally has a consistent pro-immigration message. But are moments like this a time when that kind of seems to be intention? You clearly would expect the flow of migrants to the U.S., which has been lackluster recently, um, to speed up as labour markets tighten. I mean, the one misunderstanding here is that like migrants aren't brought into the United States. Like the US States doesn't run like guest worker programs. People flow and they're super smart and they pick their moments to come. And it's easy to imagine, I think, that you know, the current regular work visa programs, which were down to like 25k or so in recent months um, per month, could rebound to something more like 100k, which over a year would give you maybe what? 1.2, 1.5 million extra workers. Would they fill the right slots? Would, 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 they, would they match this demand? It's very unclear. The crucial thing to note is that migrants, as opposed to people who are driven by sheer desperation from you know, desperately impoverished Central America or whatever, are highly sensitive to economic conditions. So Mexican migration is, is directly driven now by the US labor market. And that then also makes it quite difficult to disentangle whether or not the trade-off, the dilemma that you're pointing to is really real. Because if the migrants come where the labor market is tight and wages are pushing higher, the effect in dampening those is, is generally speaking moderated. So they don't, migrants don't come to the US economy when people most desperately need jobs. Um, so that simple sort of 101 uh, economics trade-off just isn't a reality. It's very difficult to observe. Well, you know, a Nobel Prize was won recently for finding an instance where you could neatly isolate this effect. And they're quite rare. As for the Democratic Party, well, this is, you know, this is a really big, complicated issue. I don't think it's fair to say that the Democrats are pro-migration per se, but I think the position of the Democratic Party would be that it's important to give migrants who are in the US a regularized position, precisely so that they can get decent conditions for them and their families. And on the other hand, so that they can't be used to undercut American workers, right? The regularization of the status of migrants is a win-win, and it heads towards tightening the conditions for employers generally. Okay, so finally, to turn this whole conversation on its head a bit, I guess I want to ask, why don't more of us quit our jobs? Uh, I mean, this is not a comment on on foreign policy or on Columbia University, uh, uh, you know, both of which are fine institutions. But plenty of us could probably afford to quit or step back from our jobs, at least for a while. And from what I remember, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, you know, he predicted that a more productive future society would work less, right, uh, rather than, than, than working more as it usually seems that most of us are, are, are doing these days. Um, I don't know. So have our jobs become self-imposed cages in a way? I mean, is, is that the message of the great resignation? Should it be an inspiration to more of us to, to quit? Yeah, I mean, I think Americans could certainly, you know, consider working less. Um, if you look at the um, OECD's average hours worked, it's quite, it's quite stark, actually. So I took the numbers for 2019 because 2020 is going to be distorted by, you know, short time and so on. So the OECD, which is the, you know, developed country club, uh, both Europe, United, North America, Latin America to a degree, Asia, all countries are included. So that it, it reckons that Americans actually worked on average 1,767 hours in 2019. 
So to put that in perspective, for both Germany and the UK, uh, the number is in the in the 1300s, so 1330, 1350. So that's a 400-hour difference in annual work time. So at 40 hours per week, that's that's 10 weeks. Uh, that's that's staggering. And before you begin to think like, okay, those American numbers, they've got to be wrong. This is crazy. Like, it, it, they aren't. They're just the work rate that you see in the middle-income countries in the OECD club. So the countries which have work rates close to the United States are Costa Rica and Chile. And Mexico has the highest of the, the poorest, I think, of the OECD countries, has the highest annual work rate at 2,100. But America is as close to Mexico as it is to Germany and Britain in terms of the annual hours worked. That's a that's a huge difference. And you know, for those of us in the US who earn good money and, and work in great jobs, you know, at one level it's a different society, um, it's a different attitude to work. But of course, the vast majority of our fellow citizens don't. They work tough jobs that are grinding and they do it as we've just seen for really modest levels of wage. And that's a, you know that's a tough story that those numbers tell, and the, as for the quitting, you know that too. It's like it, the, the, there's a sort of sad story in the back here because if you go back through the data as best we can estimate, because that Jolt survey isn't around, but there's data that we can use to estimate quit rates in earlier decades, and it's pretty clear that in the 60s and 70s, in the good times for the U.S. economy, the quit rate was much higher than it became in the last couple of decades. It's really in the 80s that of Americans have increasingly clung to their jobs for fear, if you like, that they wouldn't get anything else, uh, that nothing good would come along. And so it's possibly true that, you know, some people are experiencing a kind of Keynesian moment of emancipation right now. Um, you know, they've got comfortable retirement funds or whatever and good prospects. But what I think we're mainly seeing here is millions of people stuck in badly paid jobs with little satisfaction who are using and seizing this opportunity to look for a better deal. At the very least, maybe the lesson is that we should all be nicer to service workers, um, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean... <laughs> Great nastiness is a horrible thought. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you know, regardless of whether that lures people back to work, it seems like that's a, that's a, that's a good thing generally. So we're going to take a short break here and then we'll come back. And uh, like I said at the top, we will talk about pet food and what that says about our spending habits. So that's after the break. Okay, welcome back. I promised a big number. Uh, this is one not related to the news, and here it is. It is $37.96 billion. That's $37.96 billion. And that is the total amount of money that Americans spent in 2020 on pet food and pet treats. $37.96 billion. So that's a lot of money. It's more than Americans spend on all their reading material over the course of a year. That would be $15 billion. It's a little less than the Americans spend on the Marine Corps. The budget for the Marines is $46 billion, so that's the general ballpark. No dog days of summer for General Mills. A boom in pet food fueled its top line. 
Fresh pet food is a, one of the fastest growing segments in the pet care industry, and it's become the standard to have it with human grade ingredients. Jeff Bobby Flay is expanding from restaurants into pet food. Flay unveiling Made by Nacho, a pet food for cats inspired and created in partnership with his own cat. I look at this, and I, I don't know, I can't help but wonder what this says about our priorities. And I, I mean that sincerely, not as a rhetorical question. Is all this spending on pets, I don't know, is it kind of obscene? Is it, I don't pretty beautiful in a way? Uh, either way, how did it come to this? $37.96 billion. I was hoping we could get to the heart of this pet economy, Adam. But first, but first... For the sake of full disclosure, do you want to tell listeners what sort of pets you've had in your life? I'll admit right here that I don't have any pets now. And as a child, I've only ever had those kind of sort of pitiful goldfish you kind of would get from the fair and then they would die a couple days after we brought them home. So I'm not much of a pet owner. How, how about you, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I've been a pet person all my life. I mean, really goldfish, hamsters, guinea pigs, tortoises, rabbits. Um, so now we have a little dog, Ruby, uh, apple of our eye, feisty, opinionated, five-year-old, 10-pound, on a slim day, uh, Hathanese princess. Um, and we're one of 63 million households who in 2020 in the United States owned at least one dog. That's 63 out of 120 million households. And overall, the pet industry and you know the vets and so on estimate that 70% of American households own some kind of pet. Okay, so we've established that I'm in the minority here. Uh, but now to start this conversation about the pet economy, um, I was hoping we could first put it in the context of the broader animal economy. I mean, animals play all sorts of roles in economic life beyond serving as pets. They provide milk, eggs, meat. Uh, some people use them for clothing. They're part of the tourist economy, I guess, as well. They attract people to zoos, safaris, I guess. I, 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 I don't know. But do we have some sense of how the pet economy compares in size to this broader animal economy, Adam? The total pet spend in the U.S. is probably in excess of $100 billion a year. And then you compare that. To, I found a good number for horses. Apparently, 800,000 households in America owned a horse. That really took me totally by surprise. And they spend 39 billion on them because they're very expensive beasts. On the grimmer side, um, the total spend on meat packing and processing in the beef pork segment is 152 billion. For poultry, it's 65.6 billion. I think those are comparable numbers to these pet numbers that we're using. For dairy products, it's 123 billion. So pets are really up there with the food chain animals. Panning out globally, global wildlife tourism is a big, big deal. Again, these are the sorts of numbers where they're industry statistics. They want to tell you how important they are. They think it's $120 billion worldwide in spending on wildlife tourism in mainly East Africa, Asia. So all in all, yeah, I mean, Pets are a big deal, like $100 billion stacks up. Animals are in a significant way, as it were, incorporated into our lives as companion animals, as pet animals, as opposed to utility objects, of as uh, biological organisms of utility or prey for us to hunt. Okay, Adam. And now, analytically, from, from an economic perspective, can we differentiate between the kinds of consumption opportunities that animals offer. I mean, on the one hand, you could say animals provide 
us with emotional companionship. Uh, uh, on the other hand, you could say animals provide us with food. Uh, that's, you know, we could say those are both types of consumption. Is there a meaningful difference there from an economic perspective? Do we consume our pets in the same sense we consume a steak? Is that, is that, a, is that a meaningful uh, uh, way to frame it? <laughs> it's such a horrible analogy. I mean, it really, it really well, I... brought me up short. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, but it, it brings you up short because it hits so close to home. I mean, it hits so close to home in my case that I've actually given up eating meat since the dog came into our hmm. lives. I just can't do it. I mean, the thought of eating a mammal just turns my stomach nowadays. She, of course, eats meat all the time. Um, <laughs> but if you're but... consuming anything, I think like the, the category is like it's it's much more like consuming therapy or consuming wellness in some way, right? I mean, remember we've had this chat. Like, I think American spending on mental health, you know, two hundred billion plus a year. I would add the pet element to that, like make it three hundred billion, two hundred plus one hundred. Hmm. You know, pets are comfort; they're company. Uh, they deal with issues of loneliness. There's there's very very serious scientific research that shows that. Um, Petting, the physical act of petting a, a, a pet um, reduces blood pressure. It's kind of a gentle form of gym, like you've got to take them for walks. So I would almost go as far as to say that rather than consuming a steak, if you're going to if you're going to think of an analogy, it's a little bit more like adopting a child. Though, though I, I haven't done that quite yet. Oh, and and just to clarify here, I was I'm not suggesting that that uh, these are equivalent types of consumption. I I, I just want to sort of raise the question of whether the economic categories can can capture this difference that you're referring to or or whether they sort of suggest that these are kind of like fungible types of consumption you know you can either that that that, that, that these are equivalent even when they're even when they're as you're sort of very poignantly yeah. saying they're not i mean and but, but we do draw a line with yeah. kids we say that kids spending on kids we wouldn't call consumption but spending on 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 dogs we would uh, i just wanted to sort of ask whether economists yeah. can 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 make can, can can split that you know difference but but um but At some point we're gonna to have to ask a real economist it's a little unfair i feel like we're we're using we're using yeah. our phantom economist yeah yeah well like, as the diagnostic here the person who you know is emotionally blind enough to imagine that owning a dog is like eating a steak well, <laughs> no which then provokes this conversation well uh, um, of course they don't exist that's no such there's no such there's no such person but anyway it. it's a, it's a it's a fascinating you know thing to navigate so get back to the numbers that we're that we're talking about here. I mean, has the amount that Americans spend on pets has that gone up in real terms over time? I mean, beyond the rate of inflation, I mean, if if and if it has, is there a specific point in time at which pet spending just took off? Yeah, there's actually data on this. If you go to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, their big Fred data bank, they have a pet spending series. And it would seem that the 1970s are really the takeoff point. And if you believe the official data, then pet spending since the early 70s has increased about 50-fold, whereas overall consumption has increased by a factor of 16. Both of those are in nominal terms. So leaving the inflation in, how have the two increased? And one by 50, the other by a factor of 16. And um, if you dig around on this, it's stunning. Like investment banks like Morgan Stanley are actually specifically advising their clients on what they expect the future growth of pet food industry to be. And they're projecting it could be as much as 300 billion by 2030. That's overall spending on pets in that case. So it's clearly just, you know, this is pets are things that people, animals that people love. And, and so as they get better off, they do, their demand increases. 
it's as the economists would say it's a consumption that's highly elastic with income okay i'm gonna have to look into maybe investing in the pet food economy doubling in by 2030 that's quite a quite a prediction but Here's where I'm going to again now betray that I've never really been a pet owner. Uh, but but you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Adam. I, as far as I would tell or guess, animals are not terribly discriminating when it comes to their food. I mean, so that raises to me the question of whether all this spending on pet food is really even for the pet satisfaction or not. I mean, is that really for the owner's satisfaction? I mean... How should we understand the choice here that owners are making to spend all this money? I mean, part of me thinks it would be sort of this kind of conspicuous consumption, um, but this is happening in people's homes. No one's watching. No one knows when you're spending this money. So so, uh, well, maybe I'm getting something completely wrong, though, here, Adam. Yeah, I, mean, I couldn't. I mean, I'm just chuckling here because, like, next time you're in New York, uh, <laughs> we're going to go to a pet store, or rather, we're going to get Ruby. I kid you not, to take us to the pet store and show you her favourite food. She will literally take you on a tour of a of a pet store, but filled with different types of food and sniff and sample them. And, and animals, they have weird tastes. Like, you know, she loves her trash. She mm-hmm. loves dead rats. Part of the interaction is they like you to talk their food up to them. They like you to talk dirty about it. Oh, it's going to be so good. You're not going to believe how delicious this sausage is going to be. I have some of your sausage. You know. And they're completely, they're completely into this, like, you know, this conversation. Um, and, and um, you know, it's very interactive. Like, you know, they, they watch you. They watch every other dog. Um you know, I mean, they're super, it's very relational for them. Like what food, what, what the food that's good for them is, is very highly conditioned by what other animals, what other dogs around them and what the people around them are eating. So, I mean, like Ruby doesn't get booze, obviously, but she loves champagne corks. I mean, we, we like, Hmm. we like our sparkling wine and you only have to start unwrapping the champagne cork. And she is like in the kitchen waiting for the pot, you know, go off with this stinky, you know, um, slightly yeasty flavored thing that she's going to go and chew to destruction. And guess what? Guess what the fastest growing segment is? It's CBD. Mm. Oh, wow. (laughs) You've ever had to travel with a pet, you know, wow, because traveling with a stoned dog is a whole hell of a lot more fun than than if she's wide awake. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You've, you've successfully persuaded me, Adam, that, 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 that pets, take uh take pleasure in in the types of food they're getting i i guess i should have known that you also gave me a, an interesting idea for a restaurant all involving dirty talk of food that 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 maybe people would work on people too i don't know that's quite the quite the uh offer but but get to my final question here what what's I guess the implicit message in, in separating and tabulating the amount of money we're spending on pets in this way in, in the first place. I mean, is the message to suggest that we could take this money and spend it elsewhere? I mean, does an economist look at spending habits as basically interchangeable just to, to, to get back to the point I was trying to make before? I mean, should we take pet owner preferences here at face value and as something more fixed as essential spending rather than something more, more, more discretionary. Clearly at some level, you're absolutely right. It's discretionary. And I think we got into talking about this because I use this pet food test as a benchmark of whether we're serious about Mm. things. Like Mm. if you want to know whether we're serious about investment in energy research, compare it to 
pet food. And right now, globally, governments around the world don't spend more on fundamental energy research than American households spend on pets. And, um, you know, that seems wrong. We, we, given climate change, we, we ought to be like spending more than that, uh, in a sense, because we love our pets. Right? You know, this is a this is a priority. But I mean, this question of yours has really made me think. So here's a test, like essential discretionary. Here's a test. So currently, there are at least 19 million pets in the United States living with families whose income level is below the poverty line, So, which is triple the number of dogs and cats who are given over to animal shelters every year. So that means that millions of millions of people in the US right now are finding ways to feed and care for animals, even in the face of really considerable hardship for themselves and their families. So that's, you know, a commitment. And that kind of suggests to me discretion might not really be quite the right word here, right? 52% of the clients of the ASPCA animal hospitals in New York City are living on less than $15,000 per year, and yet they're bringing their animals in to be taken care of. 40% of the folks that end up giving up their animals to shelters say they would keep them if they could afford the vet bills. So I think that really um, gives you an idea of just how serious this linkage is between people and their pets. It's, you know, frankly, if I was sleeping rough, the first thing I would want is a dog, not for protection, but just for company, right? It's... It's somebody, it's something, it's it's not I say somebody because that's what comes hmm. to mind, but it's a being to share, you know, to share life with. And that's ultimately, I think, what's at stake here. That's persuasive that <laughs> animals are I guess pets are, are, are more parts of our family than 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 uh, objects of yeah, of consumption. Absolutely. Yeah. We just don't, I guess, have the economic language to describe that yet. But, um, okay, that will do it for yet another episode of Ones and Twos. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Some of you have written in to ask for some reading assignments. We're going to come up with some books to maybe think about getting yourself or your friends or families for the holidays. Uh, we also want to hear your suggestions. You can always tweet at us or email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. Ones and Twos is written and produced by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Rob Sachs and Laura rossbrow Tellum, the executive editor of podcasts at Foreign Policy is the one and only Dan Efron. Thanks, and we're going to take off next week for the holidays. That's Thanksgiving for, for those of you abroad, uh, uh, the nicest U.S. holiday there is. And uh, otherwise, we will see you back in your feed in two weeks. And uh, thanks for listening, and see you then. See you. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I think we ended up on the same page. <laughs> I, I I didn't I wasn't trying to seem like a monster, like a kind of I wasn't trying to. Come oh no like no, you were doing a great job. Like a sociopath. You're doing I, a, you're, I, you know, um, but but um, but you're but, a great foil, Cameron. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window 
and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.